Want to welcome Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Michael, good morning. Good morning. Uh, always great to be here. Lots of interesting things on the agenda today. I know you and I have discussed family law matters in the past and how emotionally charged they can understandably be. Our first story deals with confidentiality during mediation sessions. How does all that work? Yes, indeed. Uh, and I must say the uh, family uh, law bar has been, I think, uh, uh, run off its feet over the uh, course of the uh, pandemic. Uh, as uh, people uh, wind up uh, deciding that they uh, uh, can't stand the person they've been uh, <laughs> cohabiting with or locked down with at various points in time. Indeed. Uh, so there's sure been a lot going on there. Um, but this was a decision from the Supreme Court of Canada uh, dealing with uh, an issue concerning the confidentiality of mediation uh, proceedings. And the idea there um, is that when there's a legal dispute, often there'll be all kinds of efforts to try to resolve the dispute prior to uh, going to court. Uh, and happily, those things usually work. It's only a small percentage of civil or family disputes that eventually wind up in the courtroom. Um, and that's a function of lawyers and others doing their job uh, resolving cases, right? And, and usually, if you can come to an agreement, uh, both parties are going to be happier than a uh, uh, win or loss uh, in a courtroom that you don't have the same degree of control over. Um, and you'll see that if you have a civil litigation or family case going on, you'll often see the lawyers writing back and forth to each other, writing without prejudice at the top of the letter. Yes. And what they're saying there is, look, it's an effort to try and resolve the case, have a frank discussion about it, but the you know offers and counter offers can't just be then used in court. You can't stand up and say, "Aha, you know, you'd agreed to uh, this or that in the negotiations, so you shouldn't get more in, in at trial if it eventually gets there." Uh, and that's important to give space so people can have a frank discussion about things. Right? Usually works. Yes. Well, in family law cases, one of the trends over the years has been to try to make uh, additional use of mediation. Right, with a professional mediator, sometimes parties without lawyers even, right, working with a mediator, trying to come up uh, with an agreement that's satisfactory to both of them. Uh, and that's what this case uh, that eventually went to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, started with. Um, and the uh, parties who had been common law spouses for three years, they had two children, they separated, and then they uh, engaged in a process of mediation with a professional mediator, uh, which eventually produced... Uh, an agreement, uh, and the mediator drew it up and entitled it the Summary of Mediation Agreements, um, and then uh, the parties went on their way. They interestingly didn't sign that or enter into a contract or court order reflecting the agreement, but they sort of accepted it as the agreement, and for two years, uh, the uh, uh, father paid the uh, mother support and so on in accordance with the mediated agreement. Uh, then after a couple of years, in 2014, uh, the uh, mother, uh, in this case, decided that she wanted more money than what mm. was provided for in the mediated agreement. And so she went to court asking for an order for more money. Uh, and the father's response was, well, hold on. We've come to an agreement. There was a mediated agreement. Look, here's the agreement, <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, and. The mother objected to it, saying, well, hold on, you can't talk about that. That was part of a mediation. 
Um, and so the issue that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada is how far does that privilege go? Is that mediation agreement something which is uh, not uh, admissible in court? Should it be kept secret? Is that really just part of a uh, an effort to negotiate something? Uh, and ultimately, the Supreme Court of Canada sided with the father here and found that the uh, mediation agreement drawn up by the mediator that both parties had accepted, right, even though they hadn't formalized it mm-hmm. uh, for a period of two years, was an exception to that uh, privilege or confidentiality and a exception referred to as the settlement exception. Hmm. And the idea there is that once you've come to a right, an, an agreement in the mediation or negotiation of both parties have agreed to it, if you were prevented from being able to prove that you've come to the agreement, well, then it doesn't really have much meaning at all, does it, right? Yeah. Uh, and so they found that even though it's important that there be confidentiality and secrecy surrounding efforts to negotiate things or mediate things, right? That's what allows for a, a frank discussion. And somebody says, hey, I'll give you the wagon wheel coffee table if you'll give me the Pinto or you know whatever the negotiation might involve. Yes. Once you come to an agreement, uh, at that point, uh, there is an exception to that uh, kind of privilege. And so here, uh, the uh, father was able to uh, prove the nature of the agreement. Here it is. It's in writing. It was uh, written up by the mediator, uh, and both parties had adhered to it for two years. And so even though it wasn't signed off on, right, or drawn up in a separate contract, it was uh, permissible for the uh, father to rely upon it. Um, and I should say there are some other exceptions to all of this. For example, uh, when you have uh, agreements dealing with things like uh, the uh, arrangements made for the care and support of children, uh, there are circumstances where those things need to be reviewed and signed off on by uh, a court to make sure that the children are adequately uh, taken care of, right, in, in all of this. Yes. Uh, but the, the point here is that uh, there is that kind of uh, privacy to allow mediation and to allow uh, negotiations to go on. But once you get to the point where there is actually an, an agreement, um, then that's an exception to it. And, and if there, one of the parties later comes forward and says, I want to pay more or I want to pay less or I want to change this somehow, the other party would be permitted to prove that, hey, we came to an agreement uh, and that's a different thing. For, and this is the term. These are the terms of it, which is a different thing from trying to stand up and wave around uh, some offer that was made in an effort to uh, come to a, an agreement where that didn't happen. And so that's the concept is the settlement exception. And the Supreme Court of Canada has made clear uh, that that doesn't undermine that process. And in fact, it's in the broad public interest that people be encouraged to participate in things like uh, mediation to come to an agreement of what can be off, you know, often a pretty emotionally charged um, disagreement. And if you can uh, come to a mediated arrangement, that's ordinarily in everyone's best interest. And once you've done that, it's possible to prove it uh, to try to make that uh, enforceable. And indeed, and especially in family law, having one's private affairs aired for all to see in a court of law, um, I would imagine is uncomfortable even at the best of times. Certainly, right, and particularly in a case like this where there are two children involved yes. with it, right? Yeah. You know, much better if the two adults are able to, with some help, come to an agreement uh, rather than spending time and money litigating it and having some order made 
and, and so on, so that it doesn't become the central preoccupation of these children's lives going forward. And so um, I think it is also, broadly speaking, a pretty positive development uh, that there are so many additional efforts made to try to uh, mediate uh, disputes of that kind. Uh, we're doing that in BC as well. It's not always going to work, uh, but it has a pretty good rate of success, and I think this uh, uh, decision will be uh, supportive of, uh, of all of those efforts. Very well. Let's take our first break here because we have a couple of very interesting cases that I do want to get to. Coming up in just a moment as we continue Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan back after this. All right, back to Legally Speaking here at CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Up next, Michael, the Human Rights Tribunal, an award against a report and spa involving judicial review. This is complicated. Set this up for us. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, we do manage to complicate things once in a while in this profession, don't we? Um, so this was a uh, the basics of this was a resort and spa from up around 108 Mile House. Um, and the spa there was uh, purchased uh, by uh, a man from Hong Kong, um, and uh, then the, uh, a number of employees there uh, were uh, effectively dismissed, um, and it resulted in this uh, human rights uh, complaint uh, that they were dismissed on the basis of their race, uh, and uh, also an allegation that one of them was discriminated against based on sex. Hmm. The racial uh, allegation was an interesting one. Uh, the employees who were uh, effectively dismissed all identified as being Caucasian. Huh. Um, and the uh, allegation was that that is why they were fired. Um, and uh, they brought this uh, claim based on statements made by the man who purchased the resort and spa. Um, and uh, the tribunal uh, found that indeed the man who purchased the resort and spa uh, said various things, including that there were too many white people working in the resort, uh, that if he wanted to hire more Chinese students, he wished to hire more Chinese people to work there because they worked harder and didn't ask for overtime pay, uh, and that he believed that um, if he hired uh, Chinese employees on a salary, he did not need to pay them for overtime or statutory holidays. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, that uh, is uh, what he proceeded to do, was essentially uh, work out the Caucasian employees to replace them with Chinese uh, employees, thinking that he could uh, pay them less, not pay them for statutory holidays and so forth. Uh, and uh, that was the basis for the claim from one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of the people who worked at the resort and spa or did work at the resort and spa. One of the employees also brought a complaint that she was discriminated uh, against uh, because of her sex on the basis that the uh, new owner uh, had her come on a business trip to Hong Kong. Why you would, from a resort and spa in 108 Mile House, have a business trip to Hong Kong isn't explained, but in indeed they did that. And then when she showed up there, she alleged that uh, he walked her through a market that she originally said sold mainly sex toys. Oh, dear. Uh, and, and then showed up at a hotel room to find out that he'd booked one hotel room for the both of them. Um, the uh, employer argued uh, that uh, the decision to believe her uh, was unreasonable because on cross-examination, she uh, admitted that only 20% of the things sold at the market were sex toys. <laughs> but that didn't get too far on the judicial review. <laughs> nope, I don't imagine it would. No. 
So uh, the uh, tribunal uh, made an award uh, for all of the uh, dismissed Caucasian employees and as well for the uh, female employee who had this treatment uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, and then uh, the uh, owner of the resort sought, as you mentioned, a judicial review of that. And, and a judicial review is going to court, uh, Supreme Court, uh, asking that the B.C. Supreme Court review that, what amounts to an administrative decision, right? Because the decision of the Human Rights Tribunal would be sort of like uh, other administrative decisions uh, that might be made by the government, right? Anything from whether to approve construction of a house to whether to issue you a driver's license, all all of those kinds of decisions that are made on a daily basis are subject to a judicial review for the court to assess whether the decision was reasonable and in accordance with the law. Okay, yeah. So so the, the spa owner was arguing that, hey, these decisions were all unreasonable. Um, interestingly, uh, he did not provide a transcript of the evidence at the hearing, hmm. uh, which was, a, uh, I think, a pretty significant impediment for his effort to establish that the tribunal's decisions were unreasonable. Um, he would, of course, have the burden of showing that. Yeah. Uh, the judge, however, pointed out that on a judicial review, it was not a matter of just asking the judge, well, what would you have done? You would need to show that, for example, there was no evidence to support uh, decisions that were made or that the decisions that were made were unreasonable ones. And so, for example, on the claim of discrimination based on sex, the uh, owner of the respo- of the spa said, well, you know, look, she said most of the things in the market we walked through were sex toys, and, and then she acknowledged that only 20% of them were sex toys. Therefore, you know, she shouldn't have been believed. But on a judicial review, the judge looking at it needs to ask themselves, look, could you reasonably have come to the conclusion or accepted that witness's evidence? Not do I accept it, right? Or does that judge accept it? And so for that reason, uh, uh, that ground, for example, and the other uh, arguments made uh, on the judicial review application were unsuccessful. Um, And so... uh, the uh, the net result is that the uh, award of discrimination based on uh, the uh, racial background of the former employees uh, and the sex of the employee who was taken on the business trip to Hong Kong uh, were upheld, um, and uh, the uh, uh, spa will be responsible for paying the damages. As the judge pointed out, there may be additional damages as a result of uh, the wrongful dismissal of the employees, which would be a separate thing from the Human Rights Tribunal Award uh, that would be able to award uh, damages for the breaches of the um, the Human Rights Code, right? So there may be more to come, uh, but uh, there it is. So you, you can't, as an employee, fire all of your employees based on their race, thinking you may be able to get uh, employees that won't complain about uh, a failure to uh, pay them overtime. That's not on. I just, I, I can't believe it. It's like, is it is it permissible to fire employees specifically so you can hire ones that you plan to break labor law with respect to in their, like, I just, it's just bonkers, but it is what it is, I guess. 
That's, uh, no, uh, no end to human affairs, right? No, no, the, the endless no. complexity. Um, also, I would imagine the endless complexity of the style of causes or styles of cause or the, the label on, on a case, because the next one's <laughs> sort of interesting. It's, am I reading this right? Quantlin Pizza Sweets and Snacks versus Quantlin Pizza and Curry House. It's not quite, um, quite as memorable as a movie like Kramer versus Kramer, but it certainly does, uh, attract one's attention. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And the background of this was it started with Quantlin Pizza, uh, which not surprisingly sold pizza. Uh, and there were uh, two, uh, two people who were partners in that uh, business. Uh, and after a number of years, they uh, decided to um, separate and go their own ways from a business perspective. The way they did that was an interesting uh, one. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, pizza business had also uh, developed uh, a, uh, I guess, a sideline of selling um, sweets and snacks. Uh, and so these business partners who were separating decided this is maybe not a bad uh, way to do it. It's kind of the uh, uh, cutting the cake uh, method of fairness. What they did is they decided to uh, come to an agreement in terms of two portions of the business. Uh, that would be a fair division of what they thought uh, the different parts of the pizza and sweets business would be. And once they'd come to an agreement on two parts of it that would be uh, equal, uh, they agreed that they would draw lots, and uh, that would randomly determine which of the two of them would each get a, the respective parts of the business. So so all good so far. Mm -hmm. uh, they do that. One of them gets the Quantlin pizza. Uh, the other gets the sweets part of it. Um, but... The agreement also contained a provision saying that uh, the each of them would be prevented from opening up a competing store uh, using the same name uh, within four kilometers of the uh, existing locations. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. Uh, that didn't go well. Uh, after a short period of time, Quantlin Pizza and Sweets, sorry, Quantlin Pizza Sweets and Snacks uh, owner discovered that the there was a Quantlin Pizza and Curry House, which had opened up quite close by, showing up on, you know, dine-in sites and this kind oh, of thing, okay. selling pizza a little cheaper. Hmm. Uh, and so, hence the litigation. Yes. Uh, and this was a uh, application for an interlocutory injunction to try to stop the Quantlin Pizza and Curry House from carrying on what they were doing. The principal defense of the former business partner was that I have nothing to do with the Quantlin Pizza and Curry House. That's run by my brother. Um, and <laughs> I have nothing to do with it. Um, it's just, you know, it just happens to be that he's using an absolutely identical label. <laughs> all on his logo, own. Yep. All on his own. Um, and so uh, that was the, his principal defense. Now, the judge was obviously pretty skeptical uh, that the uh, brother had uh, done this uh, and the uh, former business partner had nothing to do with it. But nonetheless, that was the defense. It did lead to a, uh, an interesting issue on the injunction application, because part of the test for an interlocutory injunction is whether there would be irreparable harm and then an assessment of a balance of convenience. Yes. Um, and in resisting the application for the uh, injunction to stop operating Quantlin Pizza and Curry House, uh, part of the argument was, uh, this is going to put me out of business. The store will have to be shut down, which the judge pointed out, well, you're saying you have nothing to do with it. This is just your brother. This is just an injunction ordering you, former business partner, from carrying on Quantlin Pizza and Curry House. This has nothing to do with your brother. 
and so if indeed you have nothing to do with this, what's the problem? What harm are you possibly going to face from an injunction ordering you to stop doing this? Yeah. Uh, and so having pointed out that uh, uh, <laughs> failure of logic uh, and also having pointed out, despite the fact that uh, the judge was concerned that the uh, injunction might not uh, completely stop the problem because the injunction would only have an effect on the former business partner, right? On the basis that, yes. hey, you entered into this agreement after the drawing of lots. You can't have a Quantlin pizza company within four kilometers. Interestingly, the agreement not drawn up by a, a lawyer at the time didn't prevent that per person from operating a Quantlin pizza anywhere outside of four kilometers or indeed a pizza restaurant right next to the uh, the original Quotlin uh, pizza uh, sweets and snacks location. But nonetheless, uh, with all of those foibles, uh, the uh, judge was extremely skeptical of the uh, uh, business partner's claim not to have anything to do with this new pizza operation and granted the, inter the, uh, the interim injunction. So the business partner that drew the lot to take over the sweets and snacks part of the operation uh, is uh, prohibited, uh, at least until trial, uh, from uh, continuing to operate or have anything to do with this Quantlin Pizza and Curry House. Uh, and I, I suppose, uh, assuming there's, uh, he's following the order, we'll see whether the brother actually knows how to make pizza. So uh, there it is, <laughs> endless human affairs. <laughs> May we all have the confidence of the person who attempted the, that has nothing to do with me. That's my brother engaging in the activity that I am enjoying from engaging in, Your Honor. Uh, but perhaps the world would be a worse place if more of us did try things like that. So it's good we have a legal system to sort these things out. Michael, a pleasure as always. Happy New Year to you and yours, and we'll talk to you in a week. Sounds great. Stay safe. Thank you so much.